And again, this morning, we're going to take a week to focus and reflect on the character of God's love. We've done this a few times before as we've looked at um, how God's love leads him to uh, discipline us in that love and and how God's love and judgment go together. Uh, Those were some previous sermons. Uh, This morning, we're going to look at a particular aspect of God's love, and that's how God's love commits himself to us and how it's a love grounded on and, and filled with commitment, that he is committed to us. So we're going to read four passages about that now, uh, and we'll hear from each of these passages just how God is committed to his people in love. And so first, Nicholas is going to come and read Jeremiah 32, verses 38 through 42. This will be our main text this morning, and it, it is one of uh, Jeremiah's prophecies about the new covenant that God will make with us through Christ. Then Sharon will come and read Isaiah 43, 1 through 7 which shows uh, just how closely and how passionately God walks with his people precisely because he loves them. Sherry's going to come and read John 13, 1, which is just a very plain comment on how committed Jesus was to his disciples and followers. And then Davis will finish up with Romans 8, 31 through 39, which may be familiar to many of us, but I'd encourage you to hear these verses with fresh ears as the Apostle Paul describes how inseparable we are from the love of God in Christ. Uh, now, anytime we read God's word together, anytime certainly we preach God's word, we need God's spirit to be at work within us. Uh, there is nothing magical. This, these are not incantations. We need God to come and help us hear, help us perceive, and help us apply his word. And so I just want to pray toward that end, and then these brothers and sisters can, can come up and read for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for preserving it for us, for speaking it, for inspiring it. And Lord, we know that that you have said that it is living and active. And so I pray that as these uh, brothers and sisters come and read your word for us, uh, that it would not just uh, move in our ears and into our head and out the other side, but it would penetrate us in a real way and shape us, that we would be conformed by it, encouraged by it, convicted by it, and made more into the image of your son through it. And so bless the reading and preaching of your word now, we pray. Amen. Jeremiah 32, 38 to 42. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, And I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Isaiah 43. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. 
When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This is John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover... Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Jesus Christ, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we shall face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels, angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Well, one thing that all of those verses have in common is that they show that through the work of Christ, God commits himself to love his people forever. And when we see that reality as God intends it to be seen, it is, it is staggering. Yet in, in our day and age, I think it can be a challenge for us to grasp in particular. And I think here's why. There's a cultural barrier to us, as we read these words, of understanding God's commitment to love us. And the reason for that is that we, uh, here in modern America, we are just increasingly unfamiliar with covenant-style relationships. Outside of the Bible, you, have, uh, you may have never encountered that word before, covenant. Uh, perhaps we hear it at weddings, but largely it's unfamiliar to us. We, we might even kind of just grasp at what that word means. In a covenant, 
the good of the relationship, the, the good of, of the other party is prioritized over the good of the individual who enters into that relationship. And so if you want an example of a, of a covenant relationship, we might not call it this, but one example is the parent-child relationship. Uh, every young parent knows that when the baby starts fussing at 2 a.m., uh, it doesn't matter if you feel like your needs are being met, right? Uh, you as a parent, you get up and you, you change that baby's diaper, or you feed them, or whatever they need, you, you give them. That's, that's a marker of a covenant relationship. There's another type of relationship that we are very familiar with, and that's a consumer relationship. Uh, Consumer relationships are based strictly on meeting individual needs at an agreeable cost. Uh, And so I had a recent example of this. This past week, my house needed electrical work. I had an electrical need. Uh, My electrician's price was acceptable to me, and so I called him. We, We had a relationship this week. Uh, next week, I don't plan on calling him. I don't expect that he'll be put out by that um, or feel snubbed be- because we have a consumer-style relationship. Now, problems creep up when we get these categories confused. And that's exactly what is happening right now and probably for the last few decades in Western culture. Now, uh, Tim Keller can explain this uh, better than I can, so I'm going to let him do it. Let me read you an excerpt. He writes, sociologists argue that in contemporary Western society, the marketplace has become so dominant that the consumer model increasingly characterizes most relationships that historically were covenantal. Today, we stay connected to people only as long as they are meeting our particular needs at an acceptable cost to us. When we cease to make a profit, that is, when the relationship appears to require more love and affirmation from us than we are getting back, we then cut our losses and drop the relationship. The very idea of covenant is disappearing in our culture. Covenant is therefore a concept that is increasingly foreign to us. I think that's right. Uh, as, as you evaluate how, how people today are most prone to relate to others, don't, don't we see that it takes on characteristics of this consumer model? It's, it's not a covenant, I'm in this uh, till the end kind of relationship. That doesn't define most of our relationships. Most of our relationships will reach a breaking point where the cost is just too high and we bail. Now, if the concept of covenant is increasingly foreign to us, that's not only going to cause problems in our relationships with other people, it's also going to cause problems in our relationship with God. It may explain why we're often timid or feel fearful toward him. Um, many of us, I would guess, if, if I interviewed you, we've all had that experience where we may expect God to just one day grow weary of us that he might realize that this relationship requires more love and affirmation than what he gets back. We wonder, perhaps, if God is ready to cut his losses with us and drop our relationship. Maybe these thoughts come to us when we realize we've committed that same sin that has plagued us time and time again, and here it is again resurfacing. Or maybe it's because we compare ourselves to other people and we feel that we are particularly, for God, a bad investment. 
But when we question God's love in that way, brothers and sisters, we're confusing our categories. We are forgetting that God has not initiated a consumer relationship with us. Through the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, God has entered into a covenant with us. And this is what Jeremiah 32 and the other texts that we read make plain. You see, if we read these words rightly, and if we are in Christ truly, it should seem impossible to us for God not to shower us with good because of the love he has for us. It's what a covenant means. And so with that in mind, I just want to read for us Jeremiah 32, verses 38 through 42 again, and then I'll give us some observations. If you, uh, if, if you closed your Bible up, I invite you to open it up. We're going to be looking at this passage throughout the sermon. Jeremiah 32, starting in verse 38. And God says, They shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. In this passage, God is telling ancient Israelites what? That he is unswervingly committed to love them. Verse 40 uses that word covenant. He's bringing about a new covenant. And as the Bible unfolds, if you read Jeremiah forward, Jeremiah prophesied about 600 years before the coming of Christ. But as the Bible unfolds, it is clear that this very covenant is the one that Jesus Christ establishes as he goes to the cross to redeem his people. And so we this morning, though we are not ancient Israelites, any one of us who trusts in Christ is inside this covenant in verse 40. It includes all of us. And although we are not ancient Israelites, there are some striking similarities between us and them. They were a sinful people, like we indeed are. They had strayed from God like we often do. They had faced the disastrous consequences for their sin. Jeremiah was the prophet who prophesied and then saw that these people would be exiled for 70 years. Their sins were that bad. They were facing tremendous consequences for their sin. And yet perhaps some of us are here this morning and we face the consequences for our sin. Yet despite all of this, God's overarching message to them is that he is committed, committed to loving them. And if you, brothers and sisters, are in this covenant this morning, then he is committed to loving you. 
Now, to help us understand and, and feel the weight of God's uh, commitment, of, of God's love, I want to highlight just three things together that God says about this covenant. Three things that he says are true, three things that he promises. And I want you to, to reflect on these, not just to hear them as true, but think about how they impact you, because I think these things should move us. So three things that God says is in this covenant. First, God promises to do good to his people. Now he makes that promise not once, not twice, not three times, five times in this text. Four verses, five times he says to this people, I will do them good. So in verse 39, if you look, God says he is acting both for their own good and for the good of their children after them. Verse 40 says, I will not turn away from doing good to them. Verse 41, I will rejoice in doing good to them. Verse 42, just as God brought the consequences for their sin among, upon this people, so he says, I will bring upon them all the good that I promise them. Now, one tip for uh, trying to understand what is the main point of a passage, like what, and, and this is for the Bible, any other book you read, if there's a repeated phrase, odds are that's what the author is trying to get across. And so what's God trying to get across here? Well, the first thing is that it is not to s- just saying that God will show us some good if and when we're good enough. And he's not saying that he'll love us when he sees that we love him. No, this is a promise to show good and to love through thick and thin, for better or worse, richer or poorer, sickness or in health. And it goes beyond any marriage vow that we have made because we heard from Romans 8 that not even death will separate us from the love of Christ. So there isn't even an until death do us part clause. This is God saying, I will love you when things are going well. I will love you when you have hit rock bottom. And I am not giving myself any outs. And so there is no point, no point at which God says, well, that's it. I've had enough and I'm done. God is making here a promise to do you good, to do his people good forever, bar none. Now, I want to recognize that that you could read your Bible from page one through the end, and you will not find God making a promise like this to anyone else. He only makes this promise to his people. His commitment to us is unique. It has become his first priority. It is now his prime objective. His highest commitment is to show his people as much good as possible. Now, odds are, if you're a Christian, you might not describe your life that way. If someone were to ask you, well, how was your week this week? You may not say, man, God just showed me as much good as possible. Right? We, we might find other language. We might describe or see our lives as a kind of, of mixed bag. Well, there are there's some good things. There's some bad things. But we're invited to let Jeremiah 32 in God's words reinterpret our circumstances. 
I don't think this means that we just become cheery and glib about the hard things that we face. Rather, what it means is that we fight the fight of faith to trust that God does indeed love us like he says. We do not doubt his words. We take him at his words. He is indeed committed to us. That means that we might be willing to admit that if we could see things the way he does, and if we knew the things he knew, then we might have different opinions of what is good for us and what is bad for us. Because the reality is, if you are in Christ, God is committed to your good and nothing can deter him or change his mind. He is not half in for you. He is all in for you. This is the covenant that God has made with his people. He promises, vows, commits to do you good, no exceptions, no fine print, no exemptions. This is God's covenant love. It's what it means to be in a covenant with God. And so the, the first thing that we see from this passage is that to be in a covenant with God means he is promising to do us good. Here's the second observation that I think we see. God binds himself to his beloved. We see this in verse 38. Look at it with me. God says, this is how he opens up this whole paragraph. These words, they shall be my people and I will be their God. Now, I think the key to this statement is in the possessive pronouns. Uh, he, he, God does not say, well, they will be a people and I will be the God. I don't think he's, he's saying just something about status or role. There's possession. We are his people. He is our God. If, if you're not as familiar with the Bible, th- this phrase isn't just spoken about in Jeremiah 32. It's actually all through the scriptures. They, they will be my people. I will be their God. It's as old as Abraham, which is when God first said it in Genesis chapter 17. And it's also the height of the future promise coming to us when Christ returns in Revelation 21. They shall be my people. I will be their God. So let's think for a minute. Well, what does it mean to be his people? What does it mean that he will be our God? Well, one of the things it means is that in this covenant relationship, each party, us and God, is beginning to be defined by the other party. This is a, a biblical pattern with covenants. Let me, let me give you an example. Before Abraham, God was just known as God. If you, if you, if you open up your Bible to page 1, Genesis 1, 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how he's referred to. He is God. And you read a little further, and God creates a covenant with Abraham. And all of a sudden, he is now called the God of Abraham, Genesis 26. And then God continues to make his covenant with Abraham's son Isaac and Isaac's son Jacob. And what do you know? Now, God is referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Exodus 3, 6. And the pattern continues. God makes a covenant with all of Israel. And he's now referred to as the Holy One of Israel. Do do you see what's happening? 
We see this in, somewhat in human weddings where, where a relationship is formed that's so binding on the other person that their name changes, right? And so the end of a wedding, for the first time, I present you Mr. and Mrs. so-and-so because they weren't Mr. and Mrs. before. Something has changed. And what we see is that when God covenants with his people, something deeply personal has happened. There is a a binding of one to the other. The difference is, unlike human weddings, in this covenant, God does not only bind our name to him and his name to us. He actually takes on our nature. Jesus, who, who before the incarnation was a divine spiritual being, now has taken on flesh. He has become mortal. He has become like you. Why did he do that? Because he loved you. Because he saw that you and I were great sinners. He knew that we owed a massive debt to God for our sin that we could not pay. And he came to stand in your stead under the full agonizing wrath of God. That's what happened at the cross. This is like a groom who is individually wealthy, wedding himself to a bride with massive debts. He binds himself to her. Her debts are now his. His riches are now hers. And that's exactly what happens through the new covenant. All of Christ's riches, everything he is owed by God the Father, becomes yours, becomes mine. And all the wrath and pain and misery that we deserve for rebelling against God time and time again, he freely takes. There's this great exchange because God, through Christ, has bound himself to you to the point where you're almost inseparable. Your accounts are his. His accounts are yours. And he did it because he loves you. This was not a business deal. There was not some great payoff where he kind of looked back at the situation and said, you know, this makes sense to do this. He was compelled by love. Now, I know that in my unbelief, and perhaps in yours, we sometimes think God feels distant. Maybe disinterested. I'm not sure that he cares about me. Well, Jeremiah 32 and all the new covenant promises are in the Bible to make us realize the absurdity of those thoughts. Those thoughts are absurd. A distant, disinterested, half-hearted God is absolutely absurd when he talks this way about his love and his commitment for his people. Sharon read for us part of Isaiah 43. 
I want to reread part of it. And if you are a Christian here this morning, I want you to imagine God speaking these words to you. Because I believe he has spoken them for you and to you. Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 5. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am Yahweh, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Because you are precious, because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give men. Now, if Isaiah was writing in the New Testament, he would say, I gave my son in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. You are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Do our hearts dare remain still inside of us, brothers and sisters? When we hear God pledge his affection to us, when he speaks so often and so regularly of how passionate he feels about you, When you walk through the waters, the the challenges of your life, the trials in your life, he pledges and binds himself to you. He is there in the midst of them. He says, I will be with you. He will never separate himself from you because of his love for you. He is committed to you. And so in this covenant, we see God proming us five times over to do good. We see God binding himself to us. He is now our God. We are now his people. The third thing that we observe from this covenant is that God is committed to us with all of his being. God is delighted to enter into this covenant with us. Nothing makes him happier. Look at verse 41. He says, I will rejoice. What do you think makes God rejoice? What do you think makes God happy? What does God say, oh, this is what I'm really excited about doing? Because here's what God says. He says, I will rejoice in doing them good with all my heart and all my soul. Those are striking and beautiful words, aren't they? I will rejoice in doing them good with all my heart and all my soul. I think some people live their entire lives just to hear someone say that to them, to know that someone feels that way about them. And here, we don't hear it from human lips. We hear it from an infinite, all-powerful, all-wise, all-loving God. Now consider for a minute, this God hung the stars in the sky 
He set planets, galaxies in motion. He hewed out the Grand Canyon and the beaches of Cancun. He invented pitch so that we could hear music, so that we could sing together. He invented color so we could see sunsets. He designed your brain, skeletal system, your emotions. And what great exertion did it take for him to do all these things? What kind of strength did he have to muster up to bring all the vibrancies of creation into being? He spoke. Words came out of his mouth. And this is what happened. Speaking is easy, isn't it? It's no great work of exertion. I doubt you've ever been exhausted from speaking. Now here's the point. If all of creation came into being by God speaking words, what does it look like for him to do something with all his heart and all his soul? God is all in for you. He is willing to exert himself for your cause if you are in Christ more than he was willing to exert himself to bring creation into being. That's big. He is committed with all of his heart and all of his soul to love you, show you good, bind himself to you, Every day, he is pledging all that he has to you. Nothing is off limits from you. All his resources, all his abilities, all of his being for a purpose to show good to his people. These are the claims of Christianity, (laughs) these are the claims of the Bible. This isn't some psychological crutch so we can feel better about ourselves. This isn't some happy delusion or the power of positive thinking. If you are a Christian, this is the reality in which you live. Your doubts, your fears that God may not love you, those are the dream world. This is reality. He loves you, committed to you to the end with all of his heart and all of his soul. Now, as we grasp this reality, I believe from reading in the Bible, from what I know of your life and mine, that being loved in this way should have a profound effect upon us. The Apostle Paul and and many in the early church knew this firsthand. Paul, after literally being knocked off his horse by the love that God has for him in Christ, His life became one of passionate devotion to God. There was radical change in the life of Paul. Paul's convictions about the love of God and and the lifestyle that resulted from those convictions led more than one person to insinuate that he was crazy. You remember King Festus, perhaps. Paul is in prison and he's, he's telling this king. Can you imagine this man in chains telling a king how much he is loved by God. And Festus says what many might say, you are out of your mind. 
Paul himself referred to him as a fool for Christ's sake in 1 Corinthians 4.10. But what looks like foolishness or insanity to others, it made perfect sense to Paul. He writes these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 13. He says, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Now, what I think he means by that is people are saying, this Paul guy's a little over the top. I don't know if you can trust him. I don't know if you can believe him. He just seems a little out there. Follow these people instead. And what he's saying, I think, this is my read, I think he's saying, well, if we're beside ourselves, we are just so taken with God. That's why we sound crazy, because we are so in love with this God. And, and if we feel like we're in our right mind, well, that's, we're constraining ourselves because we want to be intelligible. We want to help you. We want to communicate this great love that God has shown us. If we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. These words, for the love of Christ controls us. It can be translated, the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us because we have concluded this, that one, namely Christ, has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Don't you admire people who are so singly devoted to Jesus? Yes, their lives, like Paul, might look a little crazy. But often, I wish my life looked a little more like theirs and a little more different from the world around me. Now, I hope it didn't escape your notice. One of the primary ways that God promises to do you good in Jeremiah 32 is to give you, quote, one heart and one way that you may fear him forever. That you too could be a fool for Christ. That you too, others could look at your lives and say, I just don't get it. I don't understand what makes this person tick because they have not yet seen this overwhelming committed love that God has for you in Christ. If people could look at your life and remove Jesus from it, would it look crazy? Would it seem a little odd? Or would it fit in? God promises to do all of his people good by giving them new hearts, by putting his law within them, by giving us a new heartbeat. I love this God. I see the love he has for me. And I'm just compelled to love him in return. That's how I make my choices It's why I moved towards sacrifice. It's why Paul evangelized. I mean, this is what drives people to move. This is what's driving Ryan Curry to move halfway around the world to Liberia. Because he has seen the love of Christ in God. The greatest enemy to this kind of Christian devotion is simply a preoccupation with other things. If you want a biblical word for that, it's idolatry. If we want to love God more passionately, obey him more faithfully, speak of him more freely, then God invites us to come and soak in this covenant love. 
Let's do it every day. I mean, he has written a whole library. You know that this is not a book, right? This is a library describing the kind of commitment and love he has for you. How he binds himself to you. How he is committed to you to the end. That's why so many of the commands in Scripture are like the Great Commission. Do you remember the Great Commission? Go therefore, make disciples of all nations. And what comes at the end? And I will be with you to the end of the age. The power for obeying God is understanding and trusting the covenant love that he has vowed to us. We understand that love, obedience gets a whole lot easier. If we taste it every day, oh, you'll grow spiritually. Let's be individuals who soak in this love, who are compelled by this love, who become defined by this love. Let's be a church that that helps one another remember the love of God and trust in the love of God and turn away from the other things that distract us from the love of God. Church, I need your help to do that. I can't do that by myself. Rob can't do that by himself. None of the elders can do that by themselves. You can't do that by yourself. We need one another. We need one another to exhort us, to remind us, And help us taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see his love for us in Christ. And so in in just a minute, I'm going to pray for us. We're going to spend some time praying together, and then we will sing. And shortly, our our service will conclude. And I just encourage you, as as you talk with one another, I I love how this church stays and, and talks with one another But could I just implore you, don't be content to talk about sports and the weather. We have much greater things to talk about. Take a second and think about how you have tasted of God's love recently. Who can you share that with? Who can you ask? Have you you experienced the, the fullness of God's love for you recently? This should be our theme. This should be our song. This should be what we talk about. Because we are his. And so let's together be a people who are deeply rooted in the love of God, knowing that he is fully committed to us and that that is how we are empowered to live holy for him. Let's pray. And I will start and then open the floor to uh, any prayers that you would like to make of confession or intercession, things you'd like God to do. Let's pray to him now together. Lord, I thank you so much for these words in Jeremiah. I thank you that we don't have to wonder about your attitude toward us. We don't have to guess at what you might think of us. You plainly tell us that through Christ you have entered into this covenant with us. Or it is do or die. You are with us to the end. No outs. And Lord, as I prayed at the beginning, I I ask that this would not be something that we merely perceive with our minds, 
But I do pray it would rock us in the core of our being. Would we feel it in our bones? So that when today's trials or challenges come up against us, we dare not doubt your love for us. God, I, I confess that there are many times, even this week, and in preparing to, to speak to these brothers and sisters this morning, where my heart has been wayward, where my heart has wanted rest apart from you, wanted um, relaxation or entertainment, instead of being satisfied in your love. God, would you forgive me? God, I pray that as we move forward, that you would help me and help us better understand and better know the great love that you have for us. Would this be the defining characteristic of our lives, that we are loved by God? Thank you, Lord.